Welcome. Um, this is the uh, next session on the larynx, AHM 14, for those who are following. The larynx becomes continuous with the trachea at C6. Last actually describes its airway protective role, which has a primitive variant in the lungfish. The support cartilages include the ring of the cricoid inferiorly, the V-shaped thyroid cartilage with its two laminae, the arotenoid and epiglottic cartilages which support the pharyngeal opening. The laryngeal cavity narrows at the arotenoid cartilages as a result of projecting vocal and vestibular folds. And that means that the lateral wall is formed by the ariepiglottic fold and the piriform recess. The two small nodules of cartilage, the corniculate and cuneiform cartilages, are embedded at the upper arotenoid margin. The laryngeal skeleton, the skeletal framework, comprises cartilages, joints, ligaments and membranes. The single cartilages are the thyroid, the cricoid and the epiglottic. The paired cartilages are the arotenoid, the cuneiform and the corniculate. The joints are paired, cricothyroid, cricoarotenoid and arotenocorniculate to be uh, precise. The ligaments uh, and membranes are extrinsic, the thyrohyoid membrane, cricotracheal membrane, the hyopiglottic membrane and the thyroepiglottic membranes. And they're also intrinsic, the quadrangular membrane and the cricothyroid ligament. And I'll expand on all of this shortly, but that's the basic infrastructure of the larynx. The upper cricothyroid ligament forms the vocal folds, that is the so-called cricovocal membrane. So that includes all of the skeletal framework. So first, let's begin with the laryngeal cartilages. To reiterate, the thyroid, cricoid and arotenoid, these are all made of hyaline cartilage, and of course we can see that they ossify over time. The epiglottic, corniculate and cuneiforms, as we know, are elastic fibre cartilage. Now the thyroid is the largest of the cartilages. It has two conjoined laminae, like a set of French doors, with the posterior free border projected up and into superior and inferior horns, or cornua, respectively. The job of the inferior cornea is to articulate with the cricoid, forming the cricothyroid joint. The laminae, of course, join as the, laminal, as the laryngeal prominence, the Adam's apple, with the notch above marking the level of the carotid bifurcation. The area is dominated by an oblique line, which is the uh, attachment of the thyrohyoid, and the infrahyoid muscles below. The thyrohyoid ligament joins the superior cornua to the hyoid, with the inferior cornua articulating, as I've said, with the cricoid. The inferior constrictor, the pharynx, the pretracheal fascia, 
and the sternohyoid and thyrohyoid muscles are all attached to that oblique line of the thyroid cartilage. The thyrohyoid membrane and ligaments. The ligaments each contain a small cartilage nodule called the triticeal cartilage, T-R-I-T-I-C-E-A-L, at the thickened posterior margin of the thyrohyoid membrane. And that's lined by the mucous membrane of the piriform recess as it snakes up inside the hyoid and is pierced by the internal branch of the superior laryngeal nerve and the superior laryngeal vessels. So uh, basically the superior laryngeal vessels and the internal laryngeal nerve. The thickening in the front is referred to as the median thyrohyoid ligament, which is separate from the posterior part uh, uh, of the central body of the hyoid bone, or separated by a bursa. And that, of course, has significance in the thyroglossal system fistula, and it necessitates that there should be removal of the central body of the hyoid bone as part of the so-called cistrunk operation. The cricoid, and that's a signet ring which articulates in synovial joints with the thyroid and the arytenoids. It's the only complete airway cartilaginous ring. And the anterior part we call the arch, the posterior projection, is called a lamina, and at the junction is the articulation of the cricothyroid joint. Above this are sloping facets for the arytenoids, and between this is a small ridge that accepts the posterior cricoarytenoid muscle. The cricothyroid joint allows the superior lamina of the cricoid and the arytenoids towards or away from the thyroid cartilage uh, in their movement, which then tightens or slackens the elastic vocal ligament. The epiglottic cartilage. And that's unique. It's a leaf-like structure overhanging the laryngeal vestibule. It is posterior to the base of the tongue, the hyoid, and the median thyrohyoid ligament, and it tapers for its attachment to the posterior thyroid cartilage as the midline fold, the thyroepiglottic ligament. The top, front and back is modified stratified squamous epithelium, but columnar ciliated elsewhere. The anterior epiglottis is attached to the hyoid by a loose fibroelastic hyoepiglottic ligament, which is separate from the thyroepiglottic and median thyrohyoid ligaments and separated by fat. Of course, the epiglottis is attached to the tongue centrally as the median glossoepiglottic fold or ligament and laterally as the lateral glossoepiglottic ligament or fold on each side, as well as to that arytenoid cartilage as there are the Ariepiglottic folds. So internally, to recap, the area is dominated by the epiglottis, sitting behind the hyoid and against the thyrohyoid membrane. The superior horn runs down with the cartilage triticea above, and this bulk is all the thyroid cartilage, and behind the epiglottis is the corniculate cartilage, the arytenoid cartilage, and infrolaterally the muscular process. The arytenoid cartilages. The arytenoid cartilages articulate with the upper lamina of the cricoid and attach the vocal folds with the membranes left and right forming the conus elasticus, as well as being a point of attachment for the laryngeal muscles. 
Now, these guys are like little three-sided pyramids that form a synovial joint with the superior border of the cricoid lamina. The cartilage projects laterally as the muscular process. That's the attachment point of the cricoarotenoids. And anteriorly, it projects as a vocal process, which is the attachment of the vocal ligament. So superiorly, there's a gentle fold called the corniculate cartilage. The posterior arotenoid attaches the transverse arotenoid muscles. Anterolaterally, the thyroarotenoids and vocalis muscles attach. The forward base of the pyramid, which I've said already is the vocal process, the lateral projection is the muscular process, and there's a superior process which articulates with the corniculate cartilage, which is the attachment of the aryepiglottic fold. The space between the conus elasticus and the thyroid cartilage is filled on either side by the cricothyroid, the lateral cricoarotenoid, and the thyroarotenoid muscles. And posteriorly, it's filled or really represents the piriform recess. Now, uh, inferiorly is the articulation of the cricoarotenoid joint. The cricothyroid joint is effectively a rocking joint which rocks around a horizontal axis which passes between the two joints and which displaces the arotenoids backwards and forwards. The attachment inferiorly, as I've said, is the cricothyroid ligament, which is so important in emergency cricothyroidotomy. At this joint, the arotenoids move so that they can approximate or separate the vocal processes and the vocal ligaments. So the action is actually a very complex rotation around a vertical axis on the cricoid lamina or a sliding action transversely with a kind of medial lateral rotation. The strong posterior capsule of the joint prevents the arotenoids from slipping forwards. The recurrent laryngeal nerve lies just immediately behind this joint. The cricoarotenoid joint is also synovial with rotary and lateral gliding action and with gliding of the arotenoids opening the rema like a V-shape and with the rotation opening the rema in the shape of a diamond. Humans have more glide really than rotation at this joint and there are also for completeness small insignificant aretino-corniculate synovial joints. Now this leads us into the ligaments and membranes. I want to sort of revisit this to some extent. Of the extrinsic membranes, the thyrohyoid membrane, thick and midline as the median thyrohyoid ligament, as we've already said, with the posterior free borders containing the small triticeal cartilage. The thyrohyoid membrane forms the lateral wall, as I've already said, of the piriform recess, and is there to anchor the skeleton of the larynx to the hyoid bone, as its name suggests. And here the epiglottis connects to the sides of the arotenoid cartilages as the aryepiglottic folds, and to the tongue via the median glossoepiglottic fold, and the pharynx by the lateral glossoepiglottic folds. I'm just really um, uh, doing some revision here. The epiglottis is attached to the hyoid and thyroid cartilages by the hyoepiglottic and the thyroepiglottic ligaments, respectively, as we'd expect. The cricotracheal ligament connects the lower cricoid cartilage to the first tracheal ring. 
of the intrinsic membranes, the quadrangular membrane, runs between the arytenoid cartilages and the epiglottis in profile as a thin fibroelastic membrane anteriorly attached to the side of the lower epiglottis and the posterior border is attached between the vocal vocal process of the arytenoid and the corniculate cartilage. The free lower border is called the vestibular fold, which we all know as the false vocal cord, and the upper border is the aryepiglottic fold at the laryngeal inlet. Last actually says that this resembles the mainsail of a boat, at least in profile. The other intrinsic membrane is, of course, the cricothyroid ligament, which we've already met. It is thickened as a midline median part as the conus elasticus, which runs between the upper cricoid and the lower thyroid. The lateral part of this, however, also called the triangular membrane, is also referred to by some as a cricovocal membrane, reflecting that it attaches posteriorly to the vocal process of the arytenoid. And that's the thickened, rounded, cricovocal ligament, which is the vocal fold, the true vocal cord. So armed with this, we need to understand, firstly, the interior of the larynx, how it appears in life and in the prosected specimens that we see, and then a little bit about the laryngeal musculature, uh, and, and that's the basic structure. So next is the cavity of the larynx. The inlet, or aditus, faces backwards and is tilted up, bounded in front by the epiglottis, at the sides and the back by the aryepiglottic folds, and posteriorly as the interarytenoid fissure. Now the area below the inlet to the vestibular folds is the definitional vestibule, and that's the reamer of the vestibule at the lower boundary. The space between the vestibular and vocal folds is the ventricle of the larynx, and that's the deep horizontal groove in any of the prosected specimens, um, uh, which is also known as the laryngeal sinus. And a probe inserted here runs into what we call the saccule of the larynx. The lateral walls are the aryepiglottic folds, which separate the vestibule from the piriform recess. And these aryepiglottic folds enclose the slender aryepiglottic and thyroepiglottic muscles, as well as the little corniculate and cuneiform cartilages. Each vocal fold consists of the conus elasticus, the vocal ligament, and muscle fibres. The conus, as I've said, is a thin layer of fibroelastic tissue attached inferiorly to the upper border of the cricoid cartilage, and which ends in the vocal fold as a thickened band, the vocal ligament. And that conus is continuous anteriorly with the cricothyroid ligament, and the free edge, the vocal ligament, passes from the thyroid cartilage to the vocal process of the arytenoid cartilage. The mucous membrane here is very tightly bound down, and here is stratified squamous epithelium, unlike the remainder of the laryngeal ciliated columnar epithelium. It wouldn't last well as ciliated epithelium, and in life it appears white. And there are some muscle fibres between the thyroid lamina and the conus passing horizontally backwards to the arytenoid, the thyroarytenoid. The medial fibres from the vocal ligament, the vocalis muscle, and the lateral fibres sweeping laterally and superiorly to the epiglottis, the thyroepiglotticus. But the bit of importance is, of course, the rema glottidus. And there are, of course, 
definitive adult lengths of each side, about 23 millimetres in the male and 17 millimetres in the female, and a standard positioning of the vocal folds of about 8 millimetres wide. We've seen before about the differences between the denervated and the cadaveric positions of the chords. Uh, that's been discussed in, a not, in another podcast when we were talking about the thyroid and its nerve supply. The infraglottic part of the larynx down to the lower border of the cricoid is where it continues, of course, with the trachea. So the free margins of the vocal folds and vocal processes of the arytenoid cartilages is the narrowest part of the laryngeal cavity. And as the arytenoid cartilages are changing the shape of the remaglottidus, that changes as the arytenoid moves on the cricoid and the arytenoids vary their association with the thyroid. So as the arytenoids displaced laterally on the cricoid, the posterior rema widens and the vocal process turns laterally, for example, as in whispering. When the cricoid lamina tilts forward, the vocal ligaments become slackened and the opening is even wider. The rema closes if the arytenoid cartilages are rotated medially and drawn together as the vocal processes come into apposition. The vocal ligaments can be tightened by the cricoid lamina tilting backwards so that there's no passage of air, and that's the start to a cough or a sneeze. The pitch and volume of the voice are a delicate interplay between the length and tension of the vocal cords, the width of the rema, and expiratory efforts. The lower male pitch correlates with the length of the vocal folds being greater. Now this leads us next into the laryngeal musculature. These small but important muscles uh, move parts of the larynx on one another where there are small alterations in the length and the separation of the vocal cords in the production of the voice, but more importantly in the size and shape of the remaglottidus in the passage of air. Intrinsic muscles of the larynx are considered in two groups, those altering the size and the shape of the laryngeal inlet and those moving the vocal folds. The muscles creating a sphincter for the inlet are the aryepiglottic and oblique arytenoid muscles, assisted by the transverse arytenoid muscle and sometimes the thyroepiglottic muscle, if the aryepiglottic is poorly formed. Um, those involved in phonation moving the vocal folds are the posterior and lateral cricoarytenoid, the thyroarytenoids and vocalis, and the transverse arytenoids and cricothyroid. Now let's try and break this down into some form of understanding. The inlet muscles. Now, what's going on here? The aryepiglottic muscle lies within its fold and it runs from the side of the epiglottis to the back, the muscular process of the arytenoid cartilage. The oblique arytenoid sends fibres to join the uppermost part of the aryepiglottic muscle. So these pass from the muscular process of the arytenoid to the tip of the aryepiglottic muscle of the other side. And these can actually attach to the contralateral corniculate cartilage. These two oblique arytenoids cross one another, superficial to the transverse arytenoid muscle, but they do act as a bit of a sphincter of the laryngeal inlet. Uh, 
The thyroepiglottic muscle uh, is from the upper thyroid lamina lying outside an area called the quadrangular membrane, which we've met before, and it's inserted into the side of the epiglottis. So in effect, the aryepiglottic muscles and the oblique arytenoids act as a kind of sphincteric mechanism on the laryngeal inlet, opposing the arytenoid cartilages and drawing the epiglottis downwards so that it actually comes into contact with the arytenoids. If the aryepiglottic fold is actually poorly formed, these other muscles, the oblique arytenoids and the thyroepiglotticus, take over that function. So this forms, as I've said, a laryngeal inlet sphincter that is efficient even without an epiglottis. Somebody's had a carcinoma of the epiglottis and that's been removed. The muscles of the vocal folds, there are only a few movements here, opening and closing and lengthening and shortening, and the muscles act in pairs as agonists or antagonists. So we're going to call opening abduction and closing adduction, adduction of the vocal folds, an action occurring at the cricoarytenoid joints. Importantly, abduction is only produced by the posterior cricoarytenoid muscle. Some say, obviously, the most important muscle in the body. Now, that muscle, the posterior cricoarytenoid, has two distinct actions, each of which is opposed by a separate adductor, adductor muscle, the lateral cricoarytenoid and the transverse arytenoid. The muscles are named in accordance with their attachments, and they include, let's go over them, the posterior cricoarytenoid. Now, it is the only, and I repeat, the only abductor of the cords. The only thing that enlarges the rema glottidus. It comes from the concavity of the back of the cricoid lamina and it ends in the muscular process of the arytenoid cartilage so that its upper part is pretty well horizontal in outline and the lateral fibres are virtually vertical. And that acting together pulls or rather rotates the arytenoid laterally and also slightly tilts the vocal process laterally, causing abduction, abduction, of the vocal fold. The lateral cricoarytenoid muscle comes from the upper border of the cricoid arch, and it passes up to the muscular process of the arytenoid under the thyroid lamina. And it actually draws the muscular process forward, but it results in the vocal processes and folds approximating each other, and it actually counteracts the cricoarytenoid rotation that is induced by the posterior cricoarytenoid. So there's an agonist-antagonist effect. Equally, the transverse arytenoid muscle is quite strong, a transverse mass of muscle connecting the posterior and medial surfaces of the arytenoid cartilages to one another, and that approximates them without any rotation. The only other muscle there is, of course, the cricothyroid, and that's more visible, of course, on the outside of the larynx in any of the specimens, and in life, after a thyroid lobectomy, you see it. It's, in fact, the only laryngeal muscle that's visible in the anterior dissection of the neck, coming from the front of the cricoid arch and fanning out backwards onto the inferior and lower border of the thyroid lamina. When it contracts, the arch of the cricoid and the tracheal notch are drawn together. Actually, the cricoid is more fixed. The thyroid cartilage tilts downwards. So as the cricoid too tilts backwards, the vocal fold is lengthened. 
It's actually easy to understand if you think of the cricoid also moving. But the effect is that the cricoid moves backwards in such a way that the vocal fold is lengthened and a little adducted. The nerve supply, if we remember, of course, is the external branch of the superior laryngeal nerve. There's a little blurb on this in the podcast on the um, thyroid. And um, uh, we've said also that this supplies the thyropharyngeus part of the inferior constrictor and that it has a classification, the cernia classification, with its association with the superior thyroid. And it has importance, as we know, the external laryngeal nerve in thyroidectomy. And I'd suggest that um, for a rehash of that, that uh, you go back to AHN2 on the neck viscera for an update of the importance of this association. There are a number of other classifications of the external laryngeal nerve. Uh, so, of course, to remind ourselves at this point that all the intrinsic muscles of the larynx except the cricothyroid are supplied by the recurrent laryngeal nerve. The continuity of this nerve inside the larynx is, of course, as the inferior laryngeal nerve. Now, this muscle uh, also has, uh, that is, cricothyroid, an antagonist, which we don't consider, the thyroarytenoid muscle, which is lateral, the saccule extending from the back of the thyroid lamina to the anterior part of the arytenoid cartilage, so that although it's a flimsy muscle, its contraction actually shortens the vocal fold. Now, some of this, without any cartilaginous attachment, is the vocalis muscle, which pulls up part of the cricovocal membrane and increases the vertical depth of the opposing surfaces of the vocal folds so that this action is actually a little more complex than simply closing or opening or abducting and adducting. It actually laterally increases the depth of the fold. So these are opposing actions which affect tension and length and which hence affect pitch. And these length tension changes can actually function independently. So what are the intrinsic movements? These muscles function for swallowing, respiration, phonation and muscular effort. So they're fairly versatile. In swallowing, the sphincter of the aryepiglottic fold protects the airway with the rema itself acting as a barrier so that the larynx is actually hauled up beneath the tongue which bulges posteriorly and the epiglottis is tilted backwards and downwards like a lid over the laryngeal inlet. In respiration, there's not a lot that happens unless the folds need to be abducted to increase air passage. In phonation, the sound varies in pitch, intensity and quality, what's called the timbre of the voice. And that's an effect on the cricovocal membrane, <coughs> which is pulled up by the vocalis so that the folds are in contact over a certain vertical length and as the folds vibrate with exhaled spurts of air, that affects voice pitch. Now, that's affected by the length, the tension and the shape of the folds, which all are themselves affected by the laryngeal intrinsics. The intensity depends on the pressure of air and the timber on the resonating chambers above, the vestibule of the larynx, the pharynx, the mouth, the nose, paranasal sinuses, all of those come into play. And it's affected by the muscles also, the soft palate and the tongue. As the larynx is depressed, 
the volume of these resonating chambers is increased. Now, there are some additional little points uh, that we can go through. The vocal folds form a dividing line into upper and lower halves of the larynx. Above the vocal folds, the superior laryngeal veins, the superior, uh, superior laryngeal vessels, the superior thyroid artery, enters the piriform recess with the internal laryngeal nerve, as we've said before, piercing the thyrohyoid membrane. The lower half is supplied by the inferior laryngeal artery, a branch of the inferior thyroid, accompanying the recurrent laryngeal nerve under the inferior constrictor muscle. And that supplies all of the larynx below the vocal folds. The inferior thyroid veins drain into the left brachiocephalic vein, not to forget that. So there's a point of embryological difference here between the right and left brachiocephalic veins. Lymphatics from the upper and lower laryngeal halves accompany the superior thyroid artery or the inferior thyroid artery to the deep cervical nodes with a few to the pretracheal, so-called Delphian nodes. Reiterating, all the muscles of the larynx are supplied by the recurrent laryngeal nerve except the cricothyroid, that's the external laryngeal nerve, and all motor fibres are derived from the cranial accessory with cell bodies in the nucleus ambiguous. With complete recurrent laryngeal nerve paralysis, the half-abducted position of the vocal fold ensues, and that's different to the real cadaveric position. The posterior cricoarotenoid muscle seems more vulnerable to injury than the adductors uh, in a recurrent laryngeal nerve injury, although it's unclear why this should be the case. And a partial lesion is actually more serious than a full paralysis. A bilateral partial lesion can be life-threatening. Paralysis of the external laryngeal nerve may be unnoticed, but it can cause some hoarseness of the voice, which can recover with contralateral uh, cricothyroid hypertrophy, <clears throat> but it's hard to produce higher frequencies where the vocal fold on the damaged side sits slightly lower than its opposite. And finally, the mucosa above the vocal folds is supplied, as I've said, by the internal laryngeal nerve and below by the recurrent laryngeal nerve. The cell bodies of the afferent fibres of both of these lie in the inferior vagal ganglion. Secretomotor fibres lie in the dorsal vagal nucleus. The internal laryngeal is only sensory, whereas the recurrent laryngeal nerve, of course, is a mixed nerve. The sympathetic supply is with the superior thyroid artery and the inferior thyroid artery from the middle and the superior cervical ganglia, respectively. Um, so the final area that we need to do is to appreciate the extrinsic muscles of the larynx in brief. Some points, firstly, the larynx moves upwards during swallowing so that there are laryngeal elevator muscles and laryngeal depressors. Hyoid elevators transmit their pull to the thyroid cartilage through the thyrohyoid membrane so that the larynx can't be depressed without an equivalent hyoid depression. Uh, most of this returns by an elastic recoil. In swallowing, the thyroarotenoid acts on a fixed hyoid bone and is assisted by the stylopharyngeus and the palatopharyngeus, which we've gone through, to raise the larynx inside the hyoid and to compress the laryngeal orifice. 
as I've said before, the epiglottis tips backwards and is assisted by the bulging posterior surface of the tongue, and that's assisted by the areepiglotticus and the thyroepiglotticus into contact with the elevated arytenoids, and it closes the laryngeal orifice with the elastic tip of the epiglottis directing the food bolus away. The elevators, the hyoid elevators, indirectly elevate the larynx, and they include the mylohyoid, the digastric, the stylohyoid, and the geniohyoid. Direct laryngeal elevators include the thyrohyoid, the stylopharyngeus, the palatopharyngeus, the salpingopharyngeus, and the inferior constrictor, the uppermost thyropharyngeus component. So all these pharyngeus muscles, stylo, palato, salpingo, and thyro, are all elevators directly of the larynx. The three salpingo, stylo, and palatopharyngeus are laryngeal muscles inserting into the posterior lamina and horns of the thyroid cartilage. And last, actually prefers the term stylo, salpingo, and palato laryngeus for that reason. Of the depressors, the indirect uh, depressors are the infrahyoids, and they include the sternohyoid and the omohyoid muscle, with the sternothyroid a direct laryngeal depressor. So that concludes our head and neck um, uh, podcasts. Um, I'm not doing uh, one on the ear. Um, I will leave that for um, uh, another specialised section of podcasts. Um, Next uh, week we're going to have the second head and neck quiz followed by uh, the answers. There'll be a completion of the history of um, anatomy over the next uh, three or four weeks and uh, we'll then move after a short hiatus uh, into the anatomy of the upper limb.